It's back to the future with the return of a national party policy of years gone by. So what is social investment and does it work? For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. In this episode, we're delving into the archives to bring you one of the best examples of our long-form journalism, Beautifully Read. This week's story is called The Mystery of the Berserk Expedition. It's by Lee Kenny, who joins us now. Kia ora, Lee. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're talking here a missing Norwegian yacht, a group of international sailors and Antarctica. This group was modelling itself on Vikings of old. They certainly had an element of defiance about them. Yeah, that's right. So there were five sailors on board a yacht called the Berserk. And the captain was a very experienced sailor called Jarle Antoy. He very much kind of modelled himself as an old style Viking. He was a very experienced polar uh, explorer, but yeah, was certainly kind of known for some of his wilder uh, exploits uh, even before the Berserk expedition down to uh, Antarctica. There seemed to be so much doubt swirling around the mission. Does it surprise you that it went ahead at all? I mean, experts certainly say that it shouldn't have gone ahead as late in the Antarctic season as it did. Traditionally, an expedition to the South Pole would require a winter over and then people would leave early the following season. As you'll hear from the podcast, there's some suggestion that they deliberately left later on. That was a claim that emerged during my investigation that Andhoy deliberately headed down late in the hope of getting better footage. So nobody knows what happens. Do you think there's any chance the berserk will be found and that more will be known about what actually happened? Uh, she sank very suddenly, is probably at the bottom of McMurdo Sound, and no trace has ever been found of the yachts or of the three men uh, whose lives were lost. Andhoy claimed that the New Zealand Navy was complicit in the boat's disappearance. My investigation explored that. I spent about six months, you know, kind of raking over old files and trying to get any evidence that I could. Probably no is the answer. Probably it was a combination of some questionable decisions and some extremely bad weather uh, that they faced as they were waiting for the two members of the party who were ashore. Certainly a saga. Thanks, Lee. Now, here's Lee with his story, The Mystery of the Berserk Expedition. The storm was ferocious. The winds neared 200 kilometers an hour and icebergs were tossed around by 10 meter waves. A New Zealand naval commander would later describe it as the worst conditions he had experienced in three decades at sea. Before it was over, it claimed the lives of three men. Leonard Banks, Tom Giesler Bellica and Robert Scarness. They were members of the Wild Vikings, a group of adventurers who sailed to Antarctica in a yacht called Berserk. Two other teammates, Yala Andhoy and Samuel Massey, were ashore, attempting an audacious expedition to the South Pole. They called themselves the Berserkers, an old Norse word meaning fierce warrior. At first glance, the Berserk was not a typical Antarctic boat. 
She had shark's teeth painted on the hull and her name was emblazoned on the sides, graffiti style. At 14 meters, she was relatively small, but she was ice strengthened and her crew were highly competent sailors. One of them was South African and British. The four others were Norwegian. They flew the conga flagget, the red, white and blue Norwegian flag from the boat's stern. After leaving New Zealand in January 2011, they sailed to Antarctica to mark the centenary of Roald Amundsen's conquest of the South Pole. The vessel was skippered by Andhoy, the expedition leader. With pale blue eyes and unkept hair, Andhoy cut a sort of rock star adventurer figure. He had a reputation for daring exploits, but he could also be reckless. Once, as part of a Bear Grylls-style documentary for Norwegian TV, he approached a wild polar bear. On another occasion, he had a dangerously close encounter with a walrus. His Antarctic endeavour was no different. If successful, he and Massey would be the first people to reach the bottom of the earth on quad bikes. But to get there, they would face freezing temperatures and the risk of falling into one of the many crevasses the deep fissures that scar the Antarctic landscape. The other issue was timing. Most South Pole expeditions are launched between November and January, ideally after wintering over on the ice. The berserkers planned to cross the frozen continent in February, late in the polar season, when the weather would be much worse. After Andhoy and Massey went ashore, Banks, Bellica and Skarnes dropped anchor in a sheltered cove in McMurdo Sound. The plan was they would wait until the land team returned. But inexplicably, the three men decided to leave the bay and sail into a polar storm. They were never seen again. Samuel Massey was a typical disaffected teen. The son of a Norwegian mother and British father, he was studying mechanical engineering at a tertiary college in Bergen but he frequently skipped classes. He also smoked weed and came close to being arrested for possession when a local dealer asked him to sell dope. Life could have turned out very differently. One day, he arrived home to find a letter informing him his application to attend an outdoor college in Northern Norway had been accepted. Massey was confused. Eventually his mother confessed she had applied for him. Massey thrived at the college and caught the eye of charismatic sailing instructor Yala Andhoy. At the end of the course, Andhoy took Massey aside and said he was impressed with the teenager's seamanship and determination. He explained his plan to celebrate Amundsen's voyage and offered him a place on the berserk. Massey didn't hesitate. Count me in, he said. It was mid-2010. Massey was 17 years old and had to get his parents' permission before joining the crew of the Berserk. After a stopover in Singapore, he flew to Darwin, Australia, where he met his shipmates. Robert Skarnes, a childhood friend of Andhoy, was the boat's chef. A former gymnast, he served in the military and had a young daughter in Norway, whose picture he carried everywhere he went. Lenny Banks was a carpenter who lived for surfing and reggae music. A South African and British national, he had long blonde hair, a laid-back manner and an easy smile. 
everyone agreed he was the ladies' man of the group. American Edwin Kumar was the Berserk's engine man. He had studied aerospace engineering at UCLA, earning the nickname Rocket. He met Skarnes and Banks while backpacking in Asia and agreed to join the crew. He was only meant to go as far as Darwin, but picked up sailing quickly and was good with a video camera. Andhoi was shooting a TV documentary about the voyage and asked Kumar to go with them to Antarctica. He accepted. It was the trip of a lifetime. From Australia, the berserkers sailed through the Torres Strait Islands and around Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands. Massey later wrote an account of the expedition entitled Hold Fast, and it reads like a boy's own adventure. They swam in shark-infested waters, visited deserted islands, and met isolated tribespeople. About this time, Kumar began to question Andhoi's leadership. The skipper ran a tight ship, the crew were clear in their duties, and there was no alcohol on board. But when they were ashore, Andhoi's behaviour would attract trouble, Kumar says. His motto was, lock your daughters away, the berserkers are in town. He got his ass kicked multiple times. Andhoi's cavalier approach extended to officialdom. He did not have the consent of the Norwegian Polar Institute to visit Antarctica and had not completed a mandatory environmental impact assessment, a requirement under the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. Things between Kumar and Andhoi deteriorated further during the Pacific crossing. Kumar scraped his knee and his leg became infected. It swelled badly and he was unable to walk. Instead of helping his crew member to get medical attention, Kumar says Andhoi told him to toughen the f up. By the time the berserk reached New Zealand, Kumar was done. He was concerned about heading south so late in the season and says Andhoi kept delaying the departure, blaming sponsors for not coming through. Kumar suspects the timing was deliberate to ensure they got better footage for the documentary. A mutual friend told him, Yale likes bad weather, because bad weather makes good TV. Kumar's concerns were not unfounded. Before setting sail, Andhoi asked the crew to sign a contract stating they were fully aware of all dangers and the high risk of the expedition. I participate, it said, at the risk of losing my life in the harsh environment and will not hold the expedition leader or the captain responsible for any loss of life. In the end, Kumar quit. Before he left, Andhoi insisted they film his farewell for the documentary. Each of the crew had paid a medical retainer and Kumar says Andhoi would only return the cash after the scene was shot. As he stood at the Auckland Marina, he felt tears well in his eyes. Goodbye friends, he thought. I won't see you again. The Berserk was heavily laden as she left Auckland. As well as the two quad bikes, she carried fuel, cold weather gear, and enough food to winter over. Anything that didn't fit into a storage space was lashed to the deck. Kumar's replacement was Tom Giesler-Bellica, a Norwegian who had previously sailed Canada's Northwest Passage with Antoy. Known as the horse from the north, he was two meters tall and broad-shouldered, the embodiment of a rough, 
tough sailor. During the voyage, he impressed his crewmates by standing on the bow and pushing icebergs aside with his bare hands. The plan was to head as far south as possible so the quad bike team would have less distance to travel over land. It was tough sailing. The cold winds were biting and the waves were like a roller coaster. The crew had to keep a constant lookout for icebergs, each taking watch throughout the night. It was still unknown who would remain on the Berserk and who would push for the South Pole with Antoy. Rolda Munson is revered in Norway, much like Sir Edmund Hillary in New Zealand, so it made sense that another Norwegian would go. As they neared Antarctica, Antoy took Massey aside and told him he would be the one. The teenager was overjoyed. The Berserk sailed into McMurdo Sound, the southernmost navigable water in the world, on February 11th. Anhoy showed the shipbound crew where they would wait, a small cove on Ross Island named Horseshoe Bay. They were only to leave, he told them, if ice forced them out. The Berserk wasn't the only ship heading into McMurdo Sound that week. The New Zealand Navy frigate, HMNZS Wellington, was charting a similar course a few days behind. The newly commissioned patrol ship was conducting sea trials in the lower Southern Ocean, the first time the New Zealand Navy had operated in Antarctic waters for 40 years. At the helm was Lieutenant Commander Simon Griffiths, a clean-cut and cool-headed career naval officer. The Wellington entered McMurdo Sound in the early hours of February 21st. At 7.30am, the crew sailed into Backdoor Bay, a sheltered natural harbour just south of Horseshoe Bay. To their surprise, they found the Berserk anchored there. Private ships frequently sailed to Antarctica, but favoured the more accessible Antarctic Peninsula, south of Argentina. Few visit Ross Island, where New Zealand's Scott Base and America's McMurdo Station are located. In the summer months, the area is home to a steady stream of scientists, military personnel, and other staff, most of whom fly down from Christchurch. If the crew of the Wellington were surprised to see the Berserk, it's not difficult to imagine Banks, Bellica and Skarnes being equally startled. As it was, the Wild Vikings were the ones who initiated radio contact. They saw the encounter as a chance to score some cigarettes. But of the Wellington's 58 crew, only seven were smokers, and with a long voyage ahead, they were reluctant to part with their tobacco. One crew member offered them a cigar. As part of its exercises, the Wellington planned to land some crew ashore and visit Ernest Shackleton's Nimrod Hut, the base for his historic 1907-09 expedition. At 9am, a group of sailors headed ashore in a dinghy. They visited the Berserk and brought the Wild Vikings fresh fruits and vegetables a lone cigar, and a warning. A storm was forecast. Griffiths would later describe the exchange as warm, jovial, and informal. But the berserkers did not disclose the real reason for their voyage to Antarctica. There was no mention of landing two people on the ice, a former Wellington crew member says, let alone the attempt at the pole. 
Before they parted, someone took a photo of Banks, Bellica and Skarnis as they stood on deck. The berserk's mainsail is neatly folded away and the tattered Norwegian flag flies on the breeze. The sky is blue and the sea is calm. There's no indication of the tempest about to be unleashed. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line no, there. That, I think Chris, that... It would be a resignation offence. If I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Okay. Nothing if in there, that sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. The Berserk's emergency radio beacon was activated at 5.53pm New Zealand time on February 22nd, 2011. Official accounts of what happened next differ. What follows is taken from a report presented to the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting in 2011. The berserk was out at sea, 18 nautical miles north of Scott Base, when the beacon went off. It is not known if it was triggered by the crew or automatically activated when it came in contact with water the signal was received by Maritime New Zealand's Rescue Coordination Centre, or RCCNZ, in New Zealand. But it was confused with another Norwegian yacht off the Australian coast with a similar identification code. By chance, the other vessel's beacon had also been activated that day. As a result of the mistake, the Berserk's distress call wasn't acted upon for 72 minutes. By that time, it was too late. The beacon ceased transmitting after 45 minutes, suggesting the berserk sank more than 10 meters below the surface, the maximum depth the emergency device could operate. Andhoy and Massey, nine days into their land expedition, were also caught in the storm. More than 200 kilometers from the coast, they were enveloped in a whiteout. Even before it hit, the journey had been tough going and they still had more than a thousand kilometers until they reached the pole. Their all-terrain vehicles had been fitted with tracks 
rather than wheels to get them across the ice, but they frequently became bogged in deep snow. The pair travelled for days with almost no sleep. As well as the freezing temperatures, there was the risk of disappearing into a crevasse. As a safety precaution, they were in contact with the berserk every six hours via satellite phone. When the storm hit, the crew didn't answer the call. At 7.40pm, almost two hours after the beacon was activated, RCCNZ relayed the distress signal to the Wellington, which was 30 nautical miles from the berserk's last known location. The Wellington has a top speed of 22 knots, about 40 kilometers an hour. In good conditions, she could have reached the site in 80 minutes. That day, the treacherous journey took more than eight hours. We were headed into the winds, doing two or three knots, the former Wellington crew member says. If we turned, it would have capsized us. At the storm's peak, winds reached 100 knots and waves swelled to 10 meters. Later estimates suggested between seven and 10 tons of ice froze to the Wellington's upper decks and superstructure, increasing the risk of capsizing the 85 meter warship. The Wellington sustained damage and four of its six life rafts were lost overboard. It remains, Lieutenant Commander Simon Griffith says, the worst conditions I've experienced in my 30 year career. Upon reaching the activation site, nothing could be seen of the Berserk or her crew. The Wellington scoured the seas for three hours before calling off its search. Amid the chaos, Commander Griffiths was notified about the devastating Christchurch earthquake. He kept the news to himself for 12 hours. Under international law, any ship is required to come to the aid of another in distress. Along with the Wellington, two other vessels responded to the Berserk's emergency beacon. One was the Steve Irwin, a 59-metre ship that was part of the Sea Shepherd fleet. It had been in the Southern Ocean pursuing Japanese whalers. Captain Paul Watson co-founded Greenpeace in 1972 and founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society in 1977. He knew the Southern Ocean well. All up, he'd spent three years navigating the waters around Antarctica. He guided his ship towards the distress signal location in increasingly dire conditions. The seas were actually trying to freeze around us, he says. The next morning, the Steve Irwin came across a 52-man life raft. It was far too big to be from the Berserk. Despite notifying RCCNZ of the find, Watson says the center didn't tell him it was from the Wellington and they wasted time recovering it. Conditions had improved by the time they arrived in McMurdo Sound. The Steve Irwin carries its own helicopter, which Watson dispatched to search the area. Starting where the distress signal was last recorded, the helicopter searched for 14 hours, refueling several times at McMurdo Station. In the calm waters, they spotted food packets and life jackets from the Berserk, but no sign of the missing men. The third ship to join the search was the Spirit of Enderby, also known as the Professor Kromov, a ship that ran Antarctic cruises from New Zealand. 
crew received the beacon's coordinates and also began a grid search. Even the passengers were out on deck, scanning the water with binoculars for any sign of the berserk. On the ship was Rodney Russ, founder of Christchurch-based tour company Heritage Expeditions. Russ has visited Antarctica more than 50 times and knows McMurdo Sound intimately. He suspects the berserk either hit floating ice or had ice on the mast and rigging, making it top-heavy and causing it to capsize. Russ admires anyone with an adventurous spirit, but says Andhoy's polar expedition was ill-conceived and doomed to failure. You need to do your homework, he says. There's no way in the world you could reach the South Pole on quad bikes at that time of the year. You don't start going to the South Pole in mid-February. After failing to make radio contact with the Berserk, Andhoy and Massey grew seriously concerned. On February 24th, Andhoy used the satellite phone to call a contact in Norway who told him the boat was missing. The pair abandoned the journey to the South Pole and headed back to Scott Base. On February 25th, the crew of the Steve Irwin recovered the Berserk's damaged life raft, 45 miles north of where the beacon was first triggered. The life raft had been unused, but the first aid kit and survival knife were missing. Paul Watson wasn't surprised. From the moment he heard about the distress signal, he doubted anyone would be found alive. It's most likely they came down on a growler, a small iceberg, he says, and crushed the hull. It went down real fast. Rodney Russ agrees. Seawater freezes at minus 1.8 degrees Celsius, and he doubts the water the Berserk crew went into would have been much warmer than that. Survival time would have been two minutes at most. That's the only good thing about it, Russ says. It would have been all over very quickly. On March 1st, a week after the distress signal was activated, RCCNZ formally suspended the search. It had been vast, covering more than 2.4 million hectares of the Ross Sea. Its official report recorded that the three boats, the HMNZS Wellington, the Steve Irwin and the Spirit of Enderby, searched for almost 141 hours. A decade on, it remains a mystery why the crew of the Berserk would have left safe anchorage and sailed out to sea, knowing a storm was coming. During this investigation, three theories emerged. The most incendiary implicates the New Zealand Navy, that the Wellington ordered the Berserk, uninvited and lacking any formal permission, to leave Backdoor Bay. In a Facebook post in 2016, on the fifth anniversary of the tragedy, Yala Andhoy wrote, Our shipmates disappeared in the Ross Sea after contact with the New Zealand Navy. Today we know that the New Zealand Navy Polar authorities and Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Norway and New Zealand withheld information, lied about circumstances, has stolen expedition gear and erased the last traces of the Berserk expedition, 2011. He later doubled down on the theory, telling the outside online website that the Wellington made contact with the Berserk three times, was carrying out surveillance and New Zealand set a strategy to offer no hospitality. Samuel Massey, too, 
doubts the cigar version and suspects that Wellington ordered the berserk to leave. I've got no idea what would make anyone leave a safe harbour into a storm, he says. That is illogical. You just don't do it. Paul Watson, captain of the Steve Irwin, goes even further. In an interview with Stuff, he accused the New Zealand Navy not just of complicity, but conspiracy. I think that the Wellington ordered these people out of the harbour, he says. Then they tried to cover up the fact that they had any responsibility in the fact that the vessel went down. There's no other explanation as to why they would have left a safe harbour while they were waiting for two other crew members to return from their excursion to the South Pole. New Zealand was very hostile to any vessels landing in the vicinity of Ross Island without prior permission. Stuff sought a transcript of the communication between the Wellington and the Berserk under the Official Information Act, but the request was declined. However, Simon Griffith tells Stuff that no such order to leave was given. At no stage was any instruction or recommendation given to the yacht by any person from HMNZS Wellington. Any loss of life at sea is distressing, and I still think about the loss of the berserk. Today on Newsable, it's back to the future with the return of a national party policy of years gone by. So, what is social investment and does it work? Plus, why are we all so obsessed with the TV show Baby Reindeer and its Eurovision finals weekend? And there are some absolute bops you simply must hear. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevit. The second theory is that the crew of the Berserk left of their own volition. Heritage Expedition's Rodney Russ questions how safe Backdoor Bay would have been in a storm. It's a precarious anchor at the best of times, he says. There's not a lot of anchoring room there. Such a severe storm would empty push ice out into the open water, Russ says, making the harbour unsafe. Some of that is multi-year ice and it's rock hard. They would soon be surrounded by ice. I don't think they had an option but to leave. Russ thinks the Berserk crew probably did the right thing in leaving Backdoor Bay. They just left it too late. Lou Sanson, a former chief executive of Antarctica New Zealand, was heavily involved in the incident and remembers it well. 
he agrees Backdoor Bay would have been dangerous in the storm. It's exposed as hell to the south, he says. It would seem to me to be good seamanship, to look after the yacht and get into open water. The third theory emerged during this investigation. Edwin Kumar, the one-time berserk engine man, says Massey told him that he and Anhoy were beaten down by the weather on their way to the South Pole. Faced with freezing to death, Anhoy contacted the berserk to come and get them. Yale called them and said, Mayday, come and help us, come rescue us, Kumar says. They had a meet-up spot if shit hit the ceiling. That's why they left that anchorage. Yale flipped it and said the New Zealand Navy told them to leave. Kumar was in Australia when he got the call that the Berserk's emergency beacon had gone off and a search was underway. Having assisted in kitting out the yacht, his name and number were registered with RCCNZ. That's why I don't believe Yale when he said the New Zealand Navy kicked them off, he says. They wouldn't kick out a f***ing vessel right before a major storm and then risk going to save them. As self-proclaimed pirates, the Berserk crew would not have left even if ordered by the authorities, he says. Those guys were trained not to leave. The only reason they would have left is if it came from Yale. Lou Sanson was one of the first people to talk to Anthoy and Massey after their aborted mission. Having abandoned the South Pole expedition, the pair travelled for 72 hours straight to reach Scott Base. They left their quad bikes and other equipment and caught the final flight of the season back to Christchurch. Sanson interviewed them when they arrived. Anhoy made no allegations against the New Zealand Navy at that time, he says. The leader of the Wild Vikings was more concerned about the search for the crew. He was convinced that his mates were still alive, Sanson says, and he was trying to mount another rescue mission. He was pleading for more resources to keep searching. Sanson grilled Anhoy about the preparation for the expedition and the lack of environmental permits. He said he knew what he was doing. He was polar trained in Norway. He just brushed me off. Anhoy was approached for this story, but said he would not comment if Massey and Kumar were also quoted. He described Kumar's theory as bullshit. Massey also denies it and says Kumar may have misunderstood the situation. Despite protests from the families of the dead men, Anhoy's plans for a documentary on the expedition went ahead. A nine-part series aired on Norwegian television in 2012. The last two episodes show the berserkers battling the elements to reach the frozen continent. That the footage even exists is remarkable. Anhoy carried all of it, several bags worth, with him on the South Pole trek, instead of stowing it on the berserk. Kumar always found that strange. That is something you would leave on the boat, he says, if you felt that the boat was secure. The story of the berserk has gone largely untold in New Zealand. The tragedy happened on the same day as a much larger one, the Christchurch earthquake, which killed 185 people, so it was barely mentioned in the media at the time. 
but more than a decade on, it still looms large in the lives of those involved. Kumar has given a lot of thought to what he would have done if he hadn't left the berserk in Auckland. I would have abandoned the boat and gone ashore until the storm blew over, he says. I wouldn't have raised sails and started the motor and gone into the middle of the storm. Never in a million years. Banks, Bellica and Skarnes did go ashore, albeit briefly, in Backdoor Bay. Research by Stuff confirmed they visited a shelter near Shackleton's hut and signed the visitor's guest book on the day of the fatal storm. Kumar now lives in Hawaii and sails in the Pacific. I still sail a lot, but I'm a very cautious sailor, he says. I do everything the opposite of what Yale taught me. Lenny Banks's twin sister Charlene also holds Anhoy responsible for the loss of the crew. I do blame Yale, she says, because it was unsafe. It was late in the season. Ultimately, he is the captain of the ship and he's the one that's responsible. Growing up in Cape Town, South Africa, the Banks twins were inseparable. Lenny was born first. Charlene followed two minutes later. He was my best friend, my protector, she says. He was everything to me. In their last conversation, when Lenny was in Auckland, he told her he might not make it back from Antarctica. He said, it's a 50-50 chance, but it's the risk I'm willing to take for the adventure of a lifetime. I tried very hard to get him off the boat. Charlene Banks now lives on the Mediterranean island of Malta. Not a day passes that she doesn't miss her brother. I'm living for the two of us. I just have to keep carrying on. I have all these unanswered questions, but I don't think they are ever going to be answered. I have to accept that they're gone. In 2012, Antoy and Massey sailed back to Antarctica to search for the wreckage and recover the quad bikes and equipment. None of it was there. During that second voyage, a short service was held to honour their crewmates, a year after they were lost. Antoy delivered the eulogy in Norwegian and English. The scene was recorded and edited to music and appeared on his Facebook page. In 2014, Norwegian authorities fined Antoy 45,000 Norwegian kroner, about 8,500 New Zealand dollars, for violating environmental protection protocols in the Antarctic Treaty. Today, Samuel Massey's life is unrecognisable from when he was a teenager in Bergen. After gaining prominence as a berserker, he was invited to appear on Skullva Dance, or Shall We Dance? the Norwegian version of the hit show Dancing with the Stars. He didn't win, but he was a hugely popular contestant and returned the following year as the show's host. He has since become a household name in Norway. His love life, marriage and subsequent divorce fueling the gossip columns. My life has truly changed, he says. It started with my story on the berserk. As well as adjusting to his newfound celebrity, 
Massey has wrestled with the fact that if Andhoy had chosen someone else to attempt the poll, he would not be alive today. I've thought about it. Definitely, he says, many times. The next most likely candidate would have been Robert Skarnes. Massey has been in close contact with Skarnes' parents and says they have thought about it too. In the start, I think they felt I had taken their son's life, in a way, which is understandable. Even though it's 10 years since, you still think about it. If not every day, it's every week. It's like flashes, you carry it with you. That was The Mystery of the Berserk Expedition on the long read from Stuff, written and read by Lee Kenny. The audio for this episode was edited by John Ropiha. If you liked what you heard, you can find other long read podcasts on your favourite platform. And please give us a five-star rating and a review so others can give us a listen as well. Thanks for being with us. Ka kite anō. If you like this podcast, please support our work visit stuff.co.nz support.